passes about. Mm-hmm. All right, one person knows what this class is about. <laughs> That's good. Uh, today we're going to be, I think that the one I titled this lesson is Not Lost in Translation, Understanding English Bible Translations. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about English Bible translation. Uh, anywhere along the way that you, you have some questions, uh, feel free to raise your hand and ask those. And uh, we, we can discuss those things. You know, a lot of these topics that we have here in the summer are for you and to, you know, to have an opportunity on certain topics to be able to discuss them a little bit more in depth. And I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we'll dive into our topic this morning. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being yours, being your sheep, and having you as our good shepherd who is always with us. And you have brought us to this place to have fellowship together, to consider your goodness in giving us your word and our language. I pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for the gift of Scripture that has come from your hand, that we would more highly esteem you and your word and to learn more from it, to enjoy our relationship with you more and our fellowship with one another, which you've given us this day. Amen. Why, why is it that you actually have a, an English Bible in your hand as opposed to not having one? Why do you have a Bible? I think one way you could answer that question is because God has been gracious to you. God has been gracious to you and has given you a Bible in your language. Not everybody on the planet has that. Uh, there's many languages on earth in which there isn't written scripture. There's unreached people groups, but you English people are a reached people group with a bazillion Bible translations. And God has primarily been gracious to us through one man in particular in history regarding the English Bible, and his name is William Tyndale. Did somebody say Miles Coverdale? Did you say Miles Coverdale? Okay. All right. That's not a bad pick either. But uh, William Tyndale was known for being the man who sang one note, which is one note was you know, the, having the, the scriptures in the common English language so that the, the plowboy could know more about the scripture than the pope. And that ended up being the case over time. As you know, William Tyndale, though he, he co completed a translation of the Greek scriptures and he started the Hebrew, he never completely finished the task. It was later finished by a man named Miles Coverdale who put out the, the Coverdale Bible. And 80%, you know, that's a rough number, 80% of that work was already done by Tyndale. So... Coverdale just finished the lacking 20%. And 
And you know, our English Bibles today are still mostly Tyndale in a lot of ways. That's where we got words like mercy seat or loving kindness in the scripture. They're words that Tyndale invented to convey you know, ideas that were in the original language so that we could understand them in our language. I want to turn to Psalm 19 and read a portion of that, starting in verse 7. If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word, Psalm 19, verse 7. This is a, a section of Scripture about Scripture from Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. I think one of the things we see here about Scripture is that we see the reason that God gave it to us. He gave it to us for His glory. He gave it to us so He could reveal who he is to us. But there's also another point that I think is made here and that it's for our good. And you see that in verse 11 where the psalmist starts writing, Moreover, by them, the scriptures, he says, Your slave is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. So we see it's not only for God's glory, but the scriptures are also given to us for our good. So... Let's say somebody comes to understand that. They want to know God more, and they're a, they're a new believer, and they want to know what is the best Bible translation. You guys have a lot of Bible translations. Which one should I use? How, how would you counsel this new believer and their turmoil over trying to pick a Bible? What are you going to do? You're just going to wait for me to start talking, give an answer. <laughs> All right, Stephen says ESV. Any of the good ones. All right. First, you can think about the question, you know, you know, which is the best translation? First thing is, is this a good question? You know, is there one that is just the best or are there just a lot of best ones? You know, are there just a lot of good ones? I think what we would have to consider for 
you know, each individual, they need to ask, well, what's going to be the best Bible translation for you? You're going to have to think about uh, the church you're in. You know, what Bible is taught from in the church that you're in? You know, that's going to be a consideration because that's going to help you to follow along with the preacher. Uh, what if you're in a church where they have, a, a, they use several Bible translations? It's like, well, you know, in the main service, they use that one, but then when they take our kids to the adventure club, they use that other one. I know, which one do we use? Well, you can just use all of them, and that's one way to solve the problem. But what Corey had said, I think, is a, is a really good way to answer that question. Yeah, just all of the good ones. We have a bazillion good Bible translations. And, you know, out of all of the the good ones, if we only had one of them, we really wouldn't be missing out on much in life. We would have everything that we needed for life and godliness. When it comes to, to Bible translations, there's uh, different types of them. There's more formal translations. Who, who could give me some example of formal translations? Yeah, King James. King James Version, anybody using that today? Okay, formal Bible translations that are in the room. How about that? All right, New American Standard Bible. Yeah, we got the English Standard Bible or ESV, English Standard Version. We have the, the LSB, it's a Legacy Standard Bible. With the formal Bible translations, what, what's trying to be preserved there is uh, something of a, a window into the original language. So sometimes they're trying to maintain sentence structure where they can. They're trying to, you know, where they can come up with, you know, one word that matches with one word in another language, which can happen, but not, not always. There's no two languages on the planet that have one-to-one -one correspondence. So you're always, what you're going to find out as we kind of work through these different types of Bible translations that there's formal and functional. You know, if you just want to break down two categories and the, the functional Bible translations, I'll put that over here. It'd be more something like uh, the, the New Living Translation, if you're familiar with that, or uh, the, the Net Bible. And they're more focused on conveying the meaning. Now, one of the things you want to understand is that both Bible, they're both trying to be formal and functional. They're both trying to carry across a common goal of the meaning of the text. And there's some elements in which if you bring across a, a, an idiom in Hebrew, it won't make any sense in English. So one of them that you would read if you had a, what, what, what we might refer to as a literal translation of the Hebrew, you would read, Yahweh is long of nose. Now, what do you think that means? And to us, you're thinking like, are you calling Yahweh Pinocchio? Like, how dare you? Uh, what it Related to and that him being long of nose, it's we, we, a similar idiom for us would be he has a long fuse, you know he or this is how it gets translated, Yahweh is slow to anger, right? And then you might have a footnote that says 
long of nose, and that kind of helps you understand, you know, Hebrew mindset, which they were people who took care of animals. Animals with a long nose were slow to anger, like a horse. Animals with a short nose, like an ox, well, we need to have laws about what if they gore somebody, right? (laughs) So you see, the, the... the, the Bible, we need to make sense to, to, to translate a cultural idiom at times. We're aimed at getting the meaning across, and that's, you know, that, having that goal and trying to do that in various languages and, and cultures requires having Bible translations, which God has given us. Now, in between, you know, formal and functional Bible translations, we, we can have this category of ones we say that they're moderate. This would be like the the Christian Standard Bible. used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The the most popular is the NIV or the New International Version. It's uh, trying to stand somewhere in between here where you're not just... Uh, I guess an example would be like in the NASB, sometimes they'll, they'll carry across a Greek sentence structure, which isn't English sentence structure. So that's why sometimes you read the NASB and you think, that was a weird sentence. <laughs> and where that's helpful is if you're a Greek student and you're looking at the, the order of the phrases in Greek, it's easier to move to the NASB than the, the, the NIV but the Greek student is also trying to get to where he can understand it the way that it's laid out in the NIV. So in a lot of ways, something like the NASB, it'll be less interpretive in some ways, but it'll be more helpful to the language student. Where the the NIV, it's not just trying to reach an American audience, it's trying to reach an international audience. It's necessarily going to have to have less American idioms. You know, it's going to have to convey the meaning of it. So sometimes there might be a phrase that has one or two words in it that they have to expand out into five words to convey the meaning somehow. And in doing so, they're not being unfaithful. They're just articulating the same truth a different way. And that that can be important to understand so that, uh, yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, having, having a concordance is a super helpful way and whatever translation. Sometimes that's, that's part of how, how you end up picking a Bible translation. It's like, well, what study tools are available with that particular translation? And we'll be talking about some of that a little, little bit more as we continue on here. So one of the things that, that we don't want to do is to say, well, the King James is, you know, the best Bible. In fact, it's the only Bible. And the, the NIV is probably demonic or something. Now, what I want you to see here is that the, these are all excellent Bible translations. None of them are evil. And you don't want to be the, the crazy person that thinks just the one that, that you picked is the best one. And you should be suspicious of, you know, like, you know, you read the NLT? 
like, would you consider yourself to be a good person? <laughs> you know, think all of a sudden you've got to evangelize that person. Uh, which my, my, my kids read the NLT. This is uh, my, one of my daughter's Bibles here. I'm going to uh, open that up and read a little bit from it. Uh, all of these Bible translations are wanting to, to convey meaning. They want to, to help the reader. They're, they're uh, upholding the infallibility, inerrancy, the clarity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. They're wanting to, to honor God's Word and to help the person who's receiving that Word on the, the other end to be able to understand what they're reading. Now, for a Bible translator, there's a lot of things that they have to consider in when they're making their Bible translation. Uh, one of them is that it actually has to sell, <laughs> right? Because if people aren't buying it, nobody's reading it. So that, that's why when you think about King James Version, like our, our Bibles today, if you change some stuff that's uh, standard King James, it'll be too weird for people within the English Bible heritage that uh, they, they won't be buying your Bible, all right? So an example of that, you know, the, when the Christian Standard Bible was previously the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, they, they made some updates that were more accurate. One of them was John 3.16, which one of the things you find out when you're a Greek student is that it doesn't say God so loved the world, emphasizing the greatness of his love, but it says God in this way loved the world. So it's not a, a text that's focused on the greatness of God's love, but it's showing the way that he expressed his love, which was by sending his son. But, yeah, but King James says that God so loved the world, and then Holman Christian Standard Bible and, and, and the, the CSB here, the Christian Standard Bible, have one of those right here. It says, you know, God loved the world in this way. I said, that is not how I learned that verse. That is really weird. And so... You, you want to find a, you know, to maintain that heritage. And that, that's a good thing to do. So the Bible translator, it has to be marketable. People have to, to they're not going to use it if they're not going to buy it. So you got to think about that. They have to think about English Bible translation. They also have to think about who is going to read this. They're going to have a readership and they're going to have a, a level of comprehension. So you think, you know, do we want to have a, a college level vocabulary or do we want to have a, a high school reader uh, vocabulary or more like an elementary student vocabulary that's going to change how you're uh, translating sentences or the words that you're going to choose to convey something that's why uh, you'll have something like the, the NLT that's the, the New Living Translation which is more focused on a younger readership where they can read it and it makes more sense. So there, there are some uh, weird sentences in, in the NLT as well because uh, my kids read this and I remember one of them was reading to me from Mark and, you know, kids, they don't know how to read punctuation, like there's pauses and stuff. And it's talking about John the Baptist and it says, you know, John the Baptist had a leather belt for food. He ate wild honey and locust. 
It's, you know, the leather belt was not for food. <laughs> but you can have some little funny sentences like that, and commas can end up in weird places. And, uh, but overall, there's things that are helpful in, in a New Living Translation. One of the things you'll have in, that happens in, in, in the Greek text is when you're reading through, there's an article in Greek. You know, we have, t- we have definite and indefinite articles. The definite article is the indefinite, a and an. That doesn't exist in Greek. There is an article, there's not, and it's not necessarily definite. It just conceptualizes something, so you'll see it floating around all over the place. So sometimes you'll have something where it, it's, there's a narrative section, and it's talking about a guy, and then there's two guys, but then one of them to, to, for the word he, for example, you'll just see the article showing up to refer to whoever that guy is. It, he'll be that one. So when you're reading, you know, Nasby, and sometimes you see, you know, that phrase, that one or this one, which, which one? You know, who are we talking about? When you read the, the NLT, it'll translate the article and who is the person that's being talked about, you know, just put in the name Jesus. Or this is also helpful in Galatians. Galatians is... Uh, you know, it's hard enough to follow Paul's really detailed argument, but you're like, wait, is he talking about Moses or Jesus here? You know, NLT, you know, put in Moses, so it helps the reader, so you don't just keep seeing he, 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 he. It's like, which he? You know, Jesus or Moses? And that, that can help a younger readership, I think. And so I think what, what, what you start to see in, the, in this way is that these... English Bible translation, they end up depending on one another and complementing one another. And I want to give you a, an example of that, and you can just use the, the Bible that you have with you. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. All right, and I have to turn there in three different Bibles up here. I'll start with reading. So this is uh, LSB, which is probably going to read just like your NASB out there, starting in verse 2. So First Thessalonians 1, verse 2 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. Now, what do those phrases, those of phrases mean? What does work of faith mean? What does labor of love mean? What does steadfastness of hope mean? How, how would you guys try to describe those? What, is, what does he mean by work of faith? Yeah, so you said the, the, the faith is what's pr- producing the work. It's motivating it, right? So you see how that, that word of is non-interpretive, right? There, there is no word of in the Greek text, but they're taking a, a grammatical construction. It's a genitive phrase, which is something that's 
uh, the most basic way, it's just descriptive. And so that, that work of faith, you have to take that extra step where they're not interpreting it for you, which could be to your benefit, and you have to understand it by the, the context. And as you keep reading the context, you can then interpret that phrase because you see that these people, because of their faith in God, they, they were working to make the gospel known. And so you can understand that. Now, the, the CSB, I'm going to read verse 3 to you from it, which is almost identical to the, the NIV as well. It says, We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you hear that? They're in interpreting this genitive phrase to say, well, the way that it's, you know, work and faith are working here is that, well, it's work produced by faith. So that, that's how faith is describing the work. It's like, well, how is love describing the labor? Well, love is what motivates the labor. How is uh, you know, hope linked to endurance? Well, it's, you know, endurance that's inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this sounds even more like a descriptor in the the NLT here. In verse 3, it says, As we pray to our God and Father about you, we thank of your faithful work. See, now it's used as an adjective in front of work. So instead of work of faith, it's faithful work. And he says, your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's super easy to read. Uh, You don't have to ask a lot of questions. You don't have to have a lot of context. So if you're a younger reader, a slower reader, things have been connected for you a little bit earlier in reading the text. But for somebody who can read a little bit more quickly and cruise through chapter one, all of this stuff just... it's a little more accessible to you. But you can also see how having, you know, understanding what each of these types of Bible translations do is that they can give you clarity on a text. You might have one of those phrases like uh, work of faith. Like, well, you know, what does that mean? Then you can check your, your NIV or your NLT, and it might help to clarify something for you. And that way they're a benefit to you in your Bible reading and Bible study. Any, any questions on that at, at this point? All right, let's look at another strange genitive phrase in Colossians 2.12. Colossians 2.12, two eleven. it's 2.11, Colossians 2.11, this is talking about Christ here and him ruling over everything, especially the church, it says, in whom, this is Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. 
Now, reading that, you probably already understand the theology that's there, but uh, I've had a, a newer Bible reader, somebody who's less familiar with Christianity, say, how, how did Christ getting circumcised as a Jewish baby have anything to do with my salvation? Can you see it? Just a circumcision of Christ. Now, what is this text actually talking about? Is it talking about like you're saved because Christ was circumcised under Jewish law? No, I mean, you can, you can gather it just from the, the words that are around the text, looking at the context. It says, you know, you were also circumcised with a, a circumcision made without hands. So you see, it's talking about this spiritual idea of being given a new heart, uh, a circumcised heart, you know, in the removal of the old way of life, of having a, a nature that's enslaved to sin and can't do anything other than that. So this phrase, you know, circumcision of Christ, if you, re you read it, you know, in one of these moderate or functional translations, you'll read something like the circumcision performed by Christ. It's something that he did for you. It's not about something that was done to him, but something that he has done for you in giving you a new heart. But you can see where people that have you know, less of a, like a Christian upbringing, you know, one, of, one of these Bible translations is actually going to be a lot easier for them to understand and comprehend. So that's something that, you know, especially it's taken into account with when it comes to missionary work in different places where there's, you know, English speakers. But we can also see when it comes to maybe you get hung up on a, a phrase like that and you want to know how it, how it might be interpreted, you know, having one of these moderate or functional type of Bible translations, maybe it helps clarify it for you. But you're like, well, how do I know that they got it right? read the context. <laughs> you know, say, so does it match with what's being talked about? You know, a lot of times when there's a phrase or a word that you want to understand in the scripture, just keep reading the other words. You know, the, the meaning of that word is determined by the other words that are around it, which perhaps should give us a, a you know, a caution and doing word studies or going on the internet and thinking because you found like Strong's number Greek stuff that you know something about the Greek because says, oh, you could, it could be translated as this word, that word, that word, that word. I like that one the best. I'll circle that one and tell everybody that's the literal meaning. <laughs> well, uh, that's not exactly how it works and you should just start with, I don't know Greek. I can't read Greek. Uh, there were you know, 40 scholars with 11 PhDs who gave me this Bible translation, and I'm probably not, you know, offering them a correction that's worth considering here. <laughs> so, you know, having, having a, you know, the, the modesty and the, the realization to, you know, not, uh, like, oh, I guess, overinflate our ability to, to translate the Bible, but instead to be thankful for the Bible translators that God has given. There's people who do this out there, and I think the, the more you learn about it, the more you, you can appreciate that work. Uh, for myself, as I got out of seminary, the, the languages were something that were very important for me, and I had many professors, you know, 
given us the caution of, you guys do not know Hebrew. You do not know Greek. Do not think that you know <laughs> either of these languages and then go out from the pulpit and tell people it means this. Uh, you only know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> you need to keep studying these things. And I had one, one professor, he told me, you just, the thing that will help you the most is learning to read these languages. He said, you can't do that yet. You've learned to understand the grammar a little bit, but you need to, to learn to read in them, just like you read in English. And, you know, gave us some strategies for that. And uh, I took that up. And while I was doing that was when the, the Legacy Standard Bible came out. And so I, I'm going through, you know, books in, from the Greek scriptures. And I'll learn every word in a book and learn to read it and then seeing how they translate it. You know, I'm working on translating from Hebrew and seeing what they're doing. And one of my professors, he, he told me, once you learn to, to read in the languages, you'll find out most Bible commentators can't. And... That was a really weird thing to kind of <laughs> come to realize in life. And uh, what it ends up sounding like uh, when you come across somebody who doesn't know a language, it would be like somebody trying to explain to us how you were using the word butterfly. And I say, well, this person, when they're talking about butterfly, you can see that the way that this word works is that it's made up of the word butter and the word fly. And so what you're literally talking about is a food fight, but it's a spiritual food fight that's going on in the heart. And it's like, no, that is not what I meant by saying that was a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> well... Maybe that's just something I wanted to get off my own chest there, less for you. But <laughs> uh, Psalm 46.10, this is uh, something I came across in Bible translation. That Yeah, somebody read that, Psalm 46.10. All right, so you, you hear that there. It says, be still and know that I am God. Now, that's a phrase we're all familiar with. It's probably on some artwork in your home. You have it on a couple of mugs. What does it mean? What does it mean to be still and know that I am God? Does it mean you just sit really still? Yeah, so that's another way it's, it's translated. You might see you have like a little number one there by be still or cease striving. And you might have something in it on the page somewhere else if your Bible has footnotes. Here in the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, they, they translate it cease, but then the footnote they say, well, it, or let go or relax. So it's this you know, idea is just, you know, just calm down and know that God is God. Uh, you don't have to try to manipulate the situation that's going on. You don't need to be in control. You just need to know that God is in control. So it's not, you know, a text that leads you to some 
like mystical form of meditation to where you're trying to empty your mind of a whole bunch of thoughts and just know that God is God, but it's, uh, you know, just relax, just chill out. That'd be another way to put it. To, to put it. You know, chill out, know that God is in control. You know, and then that's, and that's how it gets communicated in a sermon, or if you would read something like the Message Bible. So, there's a category of uh, they're not they're not Bible translations, but you could think of them as you know like a, a guy's sermonizing of the text. Like if he was trying to get across some ideas that are in the Bible in a way that a modern audience could understand it. You know, it's contemporizing what is there. Yeah, I know everybody's got the heebie-jeebies now because I said the message in the room. Uh, here's another one, the, the Living Bible. Now, one of the things we want to record, we'll just, here, we'll put a hard line right there. That'll, like, make your conscience feel better or something. They're not Bible translations, but, you know, just to think of it, it's like a Bible commentary. You know, what's another way you could put that? But also to, to recognize that in it not being a translation, you're not reading Scripture as much as you're reading, you know, a, a man's interpretation or a, a group's interpretation of trying to help you to contemporize it. So that's just how... So I'm not saying you should never read those, but just understand what they are and how they, they work because there might be something within them that, you know, it, it helps, you know, devotionalize a, a thought for you and something that you didn't quite get or it, it brings it into the, the contemporary world in which you live in a way that's helpful. I didn't draw any examples for that, which might be helpful, but... When it comes back to that question of, well, you know, how, how do you choose, you know, the, the best translation for yourself? Well, one, you want to have a Bible translation and not a paraphrase. Uh, you want to, you know, my, my recommendation is like, you know, what's being used in, in your church. You want to have a, a formal Bible translation for your main Bible. And where that's going to be helpful is that you're going to have a, a consistency of how things are translated throughout, which I think is one of the ways in which the, the Legacy Standard Bible excels. I'll, I'll give you an example from Genesis 49, chapter 1, or no, chapter 49, verse 1. I get that right. Genesis 49, 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. Now, that phrase, in the last days, that's the first time that it's ever used in the Bible, and it's the, the author's cross-referencing system. So there's a built-in cross-reference system within the Bible. And I'm not talking about those things in, in the margin where it says, you know, this links to Deuteronomy such and such, but it's done in these phrases, in the last days. Now, one of the things that happens when you're reading uh, NASB or ESV, sometimes this phrase is translated in the latter days, and sometimes it's translated in the last days. So it looks like it's a different phrase, but it's actually the exact same phrase. So where this is helpful in Bible study 
know, you're using your, your LSB and you search for this phrase, in the last days, you can actually find every single use of that. And that's helpful to you because now you're going to be able to, to see uh, the Bible author's theology of the last days, and you're not going to end up missing a piece of it along the way. That's where a, a formal translation you know, like these over here, I wouldn't use King James just because nobody talks like that anymore. Uh, you're going to have so many new words to learn, and when you quote Bible verses, you know, the, the generation that remembers those is going away, but they're still around. So uh, we want to use a, a Bible translation that's going to help us to, to study the Bible and help us to see the author's intent and where the, a formal Bible is helpful in that way, they're, they're also keeping together uh, something of, especially in the Old Testament here, the, the Hebrew construction of how a narrative works. So when you read those phrases like, now it happened, you know, this is you know, a way of saying we're in a new section right here in the translation. Where throughout Genesis, for example, you'll have these are the generations. You see that? But then sometimes you have, and now these are the generations. You're like, well, that phrase is different. But what it's doing is when it's having the word and first and now, it's putting that generation as subordinate to the one before it. So that helps you to see in your study that Genesis actually has five major parts focused on five particular generations and these, these other ones that are subordinate to each one. And so you're able to, in a way, see the whole episode. So if you're sitting down to watch, you know, you're trying to watch the season of Moses and you're in season of Genesis or whatever, you don't just see part of the episode and you're left off with to be continued and you're wondering how it relates to the other one. You're just like, oh, here's the whole episode. It goes all the way through here and these things are related to this bigger idea that was brought up at the beginning of this piece. So it helps with being able to pull that stuff together in the structure, and it helps you as a, as a reader. Which, again, even if that isn't there in your text and it's, you know, it doesn't always say, you know, now, now it happened, you know, that's just a phrase that we make up in English to, to, to try to translate a thing that isn't translatable. It's just kind of this little word that just marks a section in the Hebrew text. But when it's so, it's not like there's a moral obligation to come up with some sort of word for it. You just, whatever language you're in, you just have some sort of cue that you've moved on to another section. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with that, but you know, all Yeah, when it when it comes to, you know, a, a Bible translation that that helps to maintain, you know, Hebrew structure and a narrative, the the NASB and the the LSB are at the top of the list on that. Uh because they're they're consistently translating those sort of 
grammatical phenomenons by the same phrase all the time. Like now it happens so that you're able to follow along with that. It, you also see, well, kind of want to point out, there's footnotes in your Bible. Whoever reads those footnotes like we did on the be still, cease striving text? Nobody. We got one guy. We got two. Okay. All right, we got some people who read the footnotes. The, the footnotes are the answer key. That's what those things are. Uh, but they also help you to see, uh, you could translate, you know, this phrase or this word, you know, these different ways, but sometimes reading those different ways helps you to, like, get it. So you're like, be still. What does he mean, be still? Like, stop playing with the fidget spinner? Uh, no, I mean, you know, relax. You know, oh, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. It's, it's the thing sometimes that the translator, you know, they wish they could put it in the text, but it, they just think, ah, with the general reader, it probably wouldn't be as helpful to put that. And, and sometimes what they put in there is things that help you to connect a flow of thought that's happening in, in the text within the Hebrew to kind of key off, oh, they're using the same word all the way throughout here, but we don't have one word that does exactly the same thing that that Hebrew word does. We, we have to translate it a bunch of different ways, but they want you to know that it's the same word so that you can know they're putting the focus here. The, what you're building here is a theology of this word in particular and trying to understand it. And so the, the Bible translators aren't, aren't hiding anything from you, but they're they're putting it in the answer key, in the, the footnotes, so that you'll have access to those things, which is, you know, why, why I held off and recommended the, the LSB for so long, because they didn't have the footnotes in there, because, like, why did they do that? I'm like, I don't know. I don't have the answer key. After they came out with the answer key, I was a little more confident in moving to it. You know, one of the examples of that's in uh, Acts, if you want to go to Acts chapter 1. And it'll be chapter 1, verse 8. I just want to look at the, the last phrase that's used in this verse. He says, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Now, one of the things that they do in NASB and LSB is they, they put Old Testament quotes in small caps there or all caps. And... Uh, the LSB, they put that in, in all caps, so it says, to the end of the earth. And so, you know, oh, the, the Bible translators are trying to, to help me to know that this phrase is in the Old Testament somewhere. But if I don't have a note from them, I have no idea <laughs> where that's at unless, you know, I just have that knowledge base already in my head. So, so I thought when the LSB first came out, they had a bunch of these. They uh, had some extra ones of these that weren't in the NASB thought, well, where's that from? You know, there, there was one in Philippians. I remember Dave was preaching through Philippians, and one of the phrases, you know, this will turn out for my salvation. It's like, well, who is he quoting? <laughs> I didn't know yet until they came out with the cross-reference system, and you look it up, and you find, oh, that was Job. Job said that. But now it's like, well, what about this one, to the ends of the earth? Well, you have a little letter there and a, a number. You can follow out the letter on the verse, and you look in and say, okay, this is verse 8. I say, it's uh, 
D is the subset within there. It mentions some other Bible verses in there where you have the translator's footnote. You follow that out, you know, number one in verse eight, and you find out they're cross-referencing Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6. So, well, why, you know, why did they put that in there? It says, well, they, they want to help you to, to know and to understand that the, the book of Acts is following the theology of Isaiah. You know, this phrase, to the end of the earth, is picking up on the mission of the suffering servant in Isaiah, in which one of the points that's made toward the end of Isaiah, he's, he's saying, you know, for the, the servant nation of Israel, is you guys are going to have the mission of the suffering servant. The suffering servant's going to come and save you and bring you into fellowship with him and, and cause you to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And so what they're helping you to cue in here is that Luke, Luke's intent is to tie you into Isaiah's intent. He wants you to see that, that the mission of the suffering servant is continuing through the church, that you're a part of extending the, the mission of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ to the end of the earth. But, you know, if you didn't have somebody cue you off to that, that connection, you, you wouldn't be able to enjoy the glories of piecing together that mm, complexity, I guess you could call it, within the Scripture. And I think one of, one of the things that you find in reading the Bible is that it's the most intelligent book that you will ever read. Uh, we would expect to have things that are intricately woven together throughout Scripture like that and for these points to, to be connected and developed. And the same things said over and over and over throughout Scripture in, in a way that's, you know, multifaceted and multicolored. You know, it's not, it's not just narrative and it's not just poetry. You know, there's not just gospels and just epistles. You know, there's these same truths that are taught in so many different ways, and I'm sure you know as a Bible students yourselves, you just, you just have the joy of rediscovering the same truths over and over and over throughout the Bible. I know that's been the reality for me as I, you know, I started preaching back in Genesis and moving forward, and I thought, I didn't know that this truth came up this early in the Bible. I, I thought that was just something that Paul taught. <laughs> So, I guess I'll, I'll give a moment for questions here before I bring things to a, to a close, because I want to, you know, answer any questions or curiosities you have. Yes. Yeah. Anything that like Jehovah's Witnesses put out, or Mormons, or some like Luciferian cult. Yeah, the Passion Translation. That would be another cult translation from the. Yeah, Catholic Bible, it's, you're going to have some extra books in there and some, you know, you'll never read the word repentance in it. You know, you'll read do penance instead, which is a very different sort of concept. What was that? It rhymes? It rhymes, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> yes, sir. Why did I choose the Legacy Standard Bible? I found while, while I was, you know, in my, in my own devotional time, uh, 
continuing to, to learn to read in the original languages, doing translating work myself, that it, it was the best teaching tool. So to me, it was kind of like, you know, like the difference of having like a, a Makita tool set versus the still shopping at Harbor Freight. You're like, man, I got a coupon for the Makita stuff. I think I'm going to upgrade. It's like, well, just use the best tools you can, you know, if you can get them. Yes, sir. <laughs> Yeah, there's the, you, you can use a Greek interlinear, which I, I would caution you with that that's super dangerous, especially when you don't, under, you don't understand the grammar, that there's logic and concepts that are being built through the grammatical structures and certain, that there's logical markers within uh, the Greek texts that are like cueing you in and uh, where a main idea is and subpoints and stuff. Uh, if, you, if you want to know what the Greek text says, just read your Bible in English. That's what it says. Uh, that was one of the things that I, I found as I continued to, to learn the languages. And I'm not, you know, super amazing at them by any means. But people are like, well, what does it say in the Greek? It's like, well, what it says in your Bible translation. That's, that's what it says. <laughs> and, but the benefit, the benefit, you know, for the, the preacher teacher is, you know, one, one, I see it as a stewardship. You know, I teach the Bible. You know, I, I need to know as, as much as I can with how the Lord has gifted me and the, the time I have to, to steward what has been entrusted to me so that I can teach most faithfully. But I, I never find hidden meanings <laughs> in Hebrew or Greek, but it, it's kind of like I have a, a high-definition view of uh, the logic of the text. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the main point. That's the thing that's being emphasized. And so I know when I come to teach on a text, it's like, this is the thing that I need to talk about the most. You know, that's what tends to come out of it. Or the sermon outline comes out of it. You'll see, well, there just happens to be three points. And I can think of three words that start with the same letter to articulate these ideas. <laughs> and that's how it goes most of the time. Uh, Legacy Standard Bible, you know, so why did I choose it? Uh, it? It's for the consistency of how it translates certain phrases. So the one that I brought up, you know, in the last days, you know, if I start, you know, if I'm preaching through that, teaching through that, I can have you start turning to a bunch of passages and you're going to see the same phrase all the time, all the way throughout. That also helps you as a Bible reader to to have a greater window into the author's intent because the author was using certain phrases to connect them so that you would be connecting all of those thoughts together in your Bible reading. And it, it excels in a teaching tool in that way. And I, I especially found that while I was teaching through the, the book of Exodus, which, you know, I was perfect. I, I could have continued in the ESV for the, the rest of my life and that would have been just fine, but as I was working through it, I thought, you know, the, the Legacy Standard Bible is just so much more helpful to me as a teaching tool because I don't have to uh, explain a, as many things. Like, I can just say, here, look at this. You know, this word is there. That phrase is there. You know, this is what's said there. And uh, I, I guess you could say I could teach more efficiently from it. 
than other techs. So, you know, I, I upgraded to the Makita tool combo set. That's what I did. Or Milwaukee, if you like that. Oh, yeah. DeWalt, okay. <laughs> yeah, Corey. Yeah, I they're not doing any other updates, but what they are doing is they're uploading all of the translators, well, not all of the translators' notes, but they're uploading, you know, some of their notes so that you can understand their translation decisions or uh, you can understand some of the connections that they're trying to bring across or that they couldn't somehow just because it, it wouldn't work in English, and that's on their website. Uh, and another thing that was unique with with the LSB that I'm not aware of has happened in any other English Bible translation was that the entire team went through every single word together in the scripture so that there would be a consistency of how they were translating things. And that's, that's, that's unique, but it also gives you a, a more zeroed in, locked in sort of translation where you can have, you know, what happens in other ones, it's like, well, you know, this guy over here, he's going to translate Genesis and Psalms. You know, other guy over here, he gets Leviticus and Job. And, they, you know, these guys might not even know each other, but they both do their own translation. And then there's one guy that's a general editor that's trying to smooth out, well, ah, this guy translated this phrase this way, this one did it that way. Ah, the publishing date is in a few months. <laughs> Can't do all of these. <laughs> and you just got to put it out. But it's not that... You know, just because they translated a phrase differently doesn't mean that it's inaccurate. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's still accurate. It's just put a different way. But when you have, you know, that the entire translation team going through every single word together, you're going to have a much higher consistency. And also with, the, you know, having computers and having, you know, all, all of the Greek, Aramaic, and Greek, or Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek text, it, it's all... All of the grammatical stuff is all tagged in a way where you can search it in a computer and you can go find like a grammatical construction. It's like, well, when do you see this thing plus this thing next to each other? And you can pull every single instance up and then go through and say, let's make sure we translate them consistently the same all the way throughout the entire Bible. And so we can do that. And it's just a, it's not like more accurate. It's like, you know, other, other translations are still accurate, but this one has, it, uh, it's more easy to see the consistency. I guess you could put it that way. And so you're trying to figure out what you're going to do because, you know, somebody, they bought you this really fancy Bible and you've been highlighting it and marketing it forever. You know, what are you going to do? Well, you'll, you'll have to figure that out. You know, if you're only going to be on this earth another 20 years, just stick with that Bible, you know? There's no reason to try to, to, to switch now and redo all of the notes and the highlights and stuff and, unless you just want to do that. But uh, you're, 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 not, you're not going to like, miss out on, on anything. But I think there's also a benefit into, you know, ha having the same translation that's being taught from uh, in, in your church but I'd also, you know, recommend, you know, ha having one of these moderate or functional translations. I think when, if you start reading one, it's going to be really exciting to read it because you're going to hear things said differently and it's going to make you think about it 
You're not just going to read it and be familiar with it like you do in whatever your main Bible translation is. You're like, oh, I haven't heard it put this way. And I think that'll especially be true like when you're reading through the Psalms, for examples, you know, they're, because they're uh, translating and interpreting a lot of the poetical devices and stuff that are there. And you're like, oh, that actually makes a lot more sense. Like, that sounds normal. And so I very much, you know, recommend doing that. You know, I, I've really enjoyed reading through the CSB and, you know, would recommend uh, doing that. Uh, you know, it'll breathe, you know, new life into, you know, your annual Bible reading or however you choose to pace that out uh, in your life. And uh, it, it can cause you to to see see things and not overlook things that you're just super familiar with, you know. Does that make sense? All right, we've got some nods. Yeah, so their, their goal in the LSB was to be a, a window into what the author wrote as much as they can do that. And so one of the major updates was you know, having Yahweh instead of Lord, all caps, and because that, that's what the author wrote. Those are two different words. Yahweh is a different word than Lord. You know, Lord is a, a, a title and not a personal name. And so you see that when God reveals himself, he doesn't, you know, keep his people at a distance and just say, well, you can know me at the level of just calling me master, but that's it. And he says, no, uh, uh, you can call me by my personal name because I've brought you in relationship to, to me. So it's, it's not just slave to, to master, but there's a, you know, child to father sort of relationship. There's a, like, this concept of being a friend to him as well. And so you see that uh, God is communicating that he's personal and relational. He doesn't keep his people at a distance. He's the God who is with us. He's not just beyond us, beyond us and above us. He's, he has come to us and he's with us and leading us and guiding us. But it also helps you to see when you get to reading the, the New Testament you know, where did Yahweh go? Which is exactly the question you should be asking. And then there's this guy who, whose name is Yahweh Saves, which is Jesus. Like, where did he go? That guy. It's Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. That's the whole point. <laughs> and, and so you, you see that sort of, that personal name uh, of Jesus, his relationalness and his withness, all happening, and so it's not that Yahweh goes away, it's that he's Jesus, or the way it gets translated, so the, there's a difference between a transliteration and a translation, a transliteration of Yahweh, you're just taking those letters, you know, Y-H-W-H, you put it Yahweh, a translation would be I am, but there's a, you know, a, the way that the Hebrew language works is that you know, the, the time aspect is largely determined by the, uh, the context. So there's not past tense verbs, present tense, future tense, which, you know, to us is like, that's super weird. I don't even know how you can think like that. <laughs> but that's where in Revelation, when 
John translates the name Yahweh, he translates it using the past, the present, and the future tense, saying, you know, the one who is and was and is to come. And so it's like, well, where's the name Yahweh? Well, it's there. It's just being translated instead of transliterated. Instead of just spelling out the, the letters somehow, he's giving you the meaning of the name. And I think that's pretty huge, you know, having, you know, Yahweh in the text. But I think it, it, it's far more significant to have the consistency of uh, certain phrases together so that you can make those connections that the, the author is wanting you to make, to know, you know, when I write to the end of the earth and Acts, I want you to be thinking about the, the theology that's in Isaiah, that he was talking about the suffering servant and his mission of his witness extending to the end of the earth through you guys. I want you to be thinking about that. So, any, any other Questions? Yeah, the, they, well, they do, which is one of the reasons that they, they maintain a lot of Tyndale's work, you know, because they, they, they want to, because they recognize that, you know, with, with the Greek, for example, it wasn't uh, classical Greek that most of the New Testament is in. It's in Koine Greek, which is common Greek. So it wasn't the language of the scholar, but the language of the, the common man, and Tyndale wanted to bring that uh, across in a way that the common man could understand it, but also to, to feel something of the, the profundity and uh, you could say the, the eloquence at, at time or the, the elegance of it because it, it's certainly there. And you, you can just think about that verse, you know, Jesus wept. You know, that comes across very different than he cried hard, Right? And, you know, to well, one of the words that's, you know, we don't, we don't have a, an equivalent for is hesed from Hebrew, which gets translated uh, in some, is loving kindness. That was Tyndale's word. Sometimes you'll see it as faithful love or loyal love. And it's like, well, what's the emphasis on? Is it? The fact that he's faithful? Is it the fact that he's been gracious to me and I've been undeserving? Is the emphasis on his kindness? It's like, yes. <laughs> you know, it's all of them. It's like, well, how do you get across all of that? And the way it usually gets translated in, in Greek is the word grace. Uh, or, you know, when, uh, you know, when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses... You know, he, he says that he's full of loving kindness and, and truth. But then when Jesus shows up, he uses that same phrase of him, but said the word loving kindness as he's, you know, the fullness of grace and truth, which, again, is just making the point, you know, he's Yahweh. You know, it's the, the same one. Uh, 
and the uh, the the NASB has has never been known for being elegant so much. It, it, it tends to, uh, in some cases, it'll maintain a, a Greek sentence structure that that sounds strange. Whereas the the ESV, recognizing that, it was way more readable. They would take the next step in translation and say, well, how do we make this a, a readable English sentence? So that we have that ease of reading. So it doesn't sound like Bible English, but it just sounds like English. And that's where you had, you know, in the past couple of decades, a lot of people moving from NASB to ESV because of that, you know, it was just, it was easier to read in the public reading of scripture. It was easy for people to understand it more immediately. And, you know, the, the, the LSB did this, you know, the same thing, you know, and taking that step to how we, how do we have, you know, an English sentence? Cause people, you know, most English readers aren't thinking about Greek grammar and why, why does it start with this phrase first? Or why does it move to this word here at the end which is like one of the things that'll happen in the Greek language is that it'll, it'll save the, the newest information for the very in, end of the sentence. And sometimes the, the emphasis could be the subject, it could be the direct object, but when you're reading a sentence in English and the subject is the very last word, and sometimes it's the very last word of like five verses, yeah, that's super hard to read. It's like, who are we talking about? Like, what is going on here? But it helps to put, you know, the emphasis there and one of, the, one of the books you see that in is in Ephesians uh, with that phrase, in him. It gets, keeps getting put at the end of the Greek sentence, in him. But we can see the same thing in English because we just recognize he keeps saying in him a whole bunch, right? So the, the point isn't lost. All right, well, hopefully I wasn't too nerdy or nothing. If you have some other questions along the way, I'm... Uh, happy to try to answer those for you. So don't be afraid to, to read the NIV. <laughs> it might do good for you. Don't make fun of it if you don't know what you're talking about. And it's okay if your kids read the, the New Living Translation to you and you might find that helpful and even you know uh, understanding or clarifying some things in your own personal Bible reading. So, just so you know, you do have a good Bible translation already. If you, if you get an LSB, it wouldn't break my heart. <laughs> All right. Yes, sir. Gunner. Yeah, the, there's different words for love in, in the, the Greek text, eros, phileo, uh, agape, and they have uh, some, some different nuances within them. Uh, agape doesn't carry the, the concept of unconditional love. You can see that's, that's maybe more of a, a, an American concept, but you can see within God's love there are conditions like repentance, you know, that the, to come into this new relationship with the Lord, it's like he doesn't say, well, there's no conditions. 
There's a condition in which uh, you must have substitutionary atonement. Uh, you must repent. You must believe. But the concept of agape as a more of along the lines of a sacrificial love, you know, it's a love that gives to another, you know, regardless of their earning it or their worthiness. So there's a, a wonderful agape moment for us to share. <laughs> I'll, I'll close us in prayer and we can continue in our fellowship together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your love toward us and that you would give your word to us in our language so that we could read of your glories and even to have multiple translations that would help to give us a clearer view of it. Uh, we have a great wealth in having these Bibles that you have given us, and we pray that we would not take them for granted, but that we would have a greater appreciation of these things, and we would have uh, a greater sense of your grace toward us when we do read our word, read your word that you have given to us. And we pray that it would bring about in us a greater devotion to it and a wonderment and awe that you, the creator of the universe, would reveal yourself to us, condescend to us in Christ and bring us into a relationship with you in which we would continue to discover new glories of who you are and what you do forever and ever. Amen.